Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Real genius is over. Do you mind if I name my first child after you? Dipsh Knight has a nice ring to it. When Chris makes the scientific discovery of the century, you did it. His classmates want the credit. You're not number one around here anymore. His professor wants the publicity. And the military wants to use his discovery as the ultimate weapon. This is not good. So Chris is about to turn getting even into a science. And show them. Roger. Open Bombay doors. They should never try to outsmart. A real genius. I think I've been looking forward to this movie more than any of the other movies in this series of 80s comedies, Andy. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it was. And pray tell why. Well, I I haven't really talked much about it because I've been so nervous. Because oh. I thought, what if it's crap? What if, <laughs> what if my memory of it is so wrong? But I... 
I have such a fond memory of this movie uh, that it is, I mean, sure, there are a lot of things going on in this movie that are, you know, that are dated as a result of things that we have learned now about culture that that we might not make the movie the same way that we make it, uh, that we made it back then. But um, in general, for me, my experience with this movie is that it is, uh, it, it attempts to be as authentic as it can be living at the extreme of academia and research and science with this sort of comedic counterculture in this in this world and it is for the most part punching up uh i don't find any of the i don't find much of the comedy uh cringeworthy uh i find the characters are um are interesting to me and they represent some of the extremes well um and and overall i mean yes it is largely white still suffers from you know tokenism but largely i think they do stuff pretty well in this movie and i laughed i find it funny i find i find it a funny movie i love the whole bit uh the the oddball nature of it laszlo in the closet it just generally works for me and so i breathe an enormous sigh of relief that i can still call real genius um uh solid film for me what about you this is a film that was not on my radar in the 80s or, you know, kind of like some of these other ones that I may not have seen at the time. I knew of it, but I just hadn't seen it. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until college that I finally watched it. And I I liked it. I thought it was fine. But I think now coming at it at this age and having gone through college, having kind of a little more world experience, I find so many more interesting things going on in this film that that they were doing that had really it worked and i yeah i mean yeah it, it as you said it does have those 80s elements in it but it it was the 80s and you, you just kind of take it for what it was in the era and i but i think largely i think martha coolidge handled this well in a very specific way to avoid just creating another run-of-the-mill 80s comedy, which, as we'll talk about, this very well could have become. It really could have. I think they dodged a, a lot uh, in this movie, and what came out of it is, um, I think, a real a real treasure, and certainly a treasure in Val Kilmer's catalog. Absolutely. Yeah, he's he's uh, bright, which is, it's interesting to revisit this film in the same window of time as looking at the, the new documentary, Val, uh, kind of with that is made with all of the footage that he had been shooting over the decades and just kind of getting this personal story from him while revisiting this and just kind of getting that sense of him uh, then and now. So it's, it's a definitely an interesting uh, kind of way to kind of look at this film. Oh, we definitely need to talk about Val. Yeah, so, absolutely. Let's get into it. Real genius is rated PG. Want to watch this movie and help us out? If you see an Apple or an Amazon link to this movie in the show notes, you can just click on it and that will take you right to their site and you can rent it or buy it. When you do this, we get just a little tiny bit in return. It is a win-win and it's a great way to uh, to watch this movie so that you're ready for the show. We uh, So uh, for merch, Andy went bonkers and started trying to find all of, the, all of Chris's t-shirts. 
that have been recreated lovingly by people around the internet, uh, and they all exist, so we don't have to do it. Um, if they are in the T Public store, I'm going to add them to our gallery. If they're not, we'll put links in the show notes so you can you can get some of these. But otherwise, check out truestory.fm slash TNR merch, and uh, you can see all of our logos. And if there are uh, some new Real Genius related things in there, grab those and support those artists. We have been splitting all the shows into their own individual feeds. So now, if you would like to be subscribed to The Next Reel, The Film Board, Saturday Matinee, Trailer Rewind, all the various shows that have been kind of in our master feed, all of the shows are available in their own individual feeds now on your podcatcher of choice. You can just go to truestory.fm slash shows. You can see the full list. And then you can just click on whichever ones you want and go to your podcatcher, subscribe to it. And it's a great way to just kind of, you know, if, if you find that it's a little too much having all of them, this is your way of saying, you know, I just want to subscribe to these particular ones. We are going to start fe- featuring audio reviews from you. Email your 30-second audio file to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the film, and uh, we might just showcase your voice on this very show. Get them in quick, though. We record about two weeks ahead of uh, any show that we're released. So we're recording this show on Real Genius. It will be released in two weeks. And so if you miss the window if you're if you're getting it in after that. So... Um, uh, that's how that works. Reviews at truestory.fm. We want your voice on the show. And anyone who is a fan of Letterboxd, make sure you check out our HQ page. We are over there in the HQ members page. You can see all the other great HQs and check ours out as well. If you're a fan and you want to get a discount on a pro or patron membership, you can also do that using the discount code NEXTREAL. Or just go to the nextreel.com slash letterboxd and you can get your 20% off right away. This works for renewals as well. Just a reminder, annual questionnaire time. Uh, head to truestory.fm slash the next reel. You'll see a big button says questionnaire. If you have been listening to the show for a while and you have opinions or thoughts, this is the place to share them. It's just pretty much a bunch of quest- open questions. So you can skip them. Not, nothing is required. Uh, but we do appreciate your thoughts and insights and they help us guide how we produce the show. And to top it off, one lucky listener who fills out the questionnaire is going to get a free year of membership. Wow. So generous. Who came up with that idea? Must have been been that other guy. Very handsome. We do need your support, please. We don't tell your info. Uh, We don't uh, hawk your identity. Uh, We just need your support to uh, help us continue to grow. So if you've been thinking about becoming a member, if you head over to... uh, truestory.fm slash the next reel you can see um, you know membership perks and you can uh, jump in subscribe join and uh, and be a part of the community members can vote on the weekly saturday matinee polls uh, saturday matinee is another one of our shows and on that show we have a list topic based on the movie we're talking about this week if you were already a member you could have voted on the list topic for real genius already Members also get early access, a week early access to every episode, and they get so many bonus episodes. So many. For the next reel alone, we think there are as many bonus episodes coming up this year as there are main episodes. Yeah. There's got to be some errant math in, <laughs> in that calculation. Well, nobody said we're real geniuses, Pete. <laughs> There's also the monthly member bonus episode that fills in a gap from one of our series. There's the monthly flick chart re-ranking episode and... 
This season, we are adding in a new members-only episode. At the end of each series, members will get a series finale episode called The Retake, where we talk about what we gleaned from the films in that particular series. Members get to vote on what we're talking about in each of these member bonus series, so uh, jump in there. But wait, there's more. Members can watch the live streams as we record our shows and can even access the live streams from previous shows anytime they want. Members get super secret members-only channels in our Discord server. And now members also get stickers. That's right. We are mailing our members a couple of stickers from our merch store. Just another way to say thanks for all the support. And best of all, seriously, best of all, you don't have to listen to this every time. You get your very own personal podcast feed that includes versions of this show that do not contain us talking about members anymore. We're talking to members. There's lots of whispered stuff where we talk to members, but not about them. Just head to truestory.fm slash TNR membership, where you can learn more about our membership tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 per month or $55 per year. Thanks, everybody. All right, Andy. Ah, real genius. Uh, can we t- can we open just with a brief conversation about Val, the documentary, the Val yes, documentary? We both we both watched it. We both watched this it. weekend. Yeah. What do you think of it? I you know, I've always liked Val Kilmer. I always hear stories about how difficult he is on set and how, you know, on the saint, how he refused to work until he found the exact right sweater and all of these sorts of stories about him being such a particular actor. And, uh, you know. But I've always enjoyed watching him on screen. Like, he has a presence on screen that is very easy to watch, very entertaining, uh, very congenial. I always feel like I can connect to his characters. And that's something that I think that he carries. And watching the documentary, I found it to be really interesting how he was, you know, trained at Juilliard and, you know, had this struggle in his career, as probably a lot of actors do, of wanting to play some of these bigger sorts of more important sorts of roles. But it's difficult to get those when you start playing kind of the more popular sorts of roles. And I found that to be interesting because I can see certainly see how that becomes an element of frustration for for young actors who are just wanting to, you know, work in in something more meaningful. And they find that, you know, they're one, you know, people want them to be Batman or something. I thought that was a really interesting perspective that I hadn't really thought about. And and, you know, I mean, you know, people can say. Uh, you know, oh, oh, poor, famous, rich actor, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I don't know. I, I found myself so connected to him as a, as a person that I was able to kind of like just say, you know, it's, it is a frustrating thing. And I, I found it to be incredibly touching, particularly now at this place in his life where he's dealing with this, you know, the, the, all the repercussions that have come because of the throat cancer and how that's really shifted his direction. And I, you know, I just found it to be touching. It was a very touching uh, story that um, it just reminds you life is full of things that will just hit you upside the head sometimes, and you just have to go along for uh, with it and, and hope you can find your way through it. For sure, and and I think he, you know, what what I love so much about it is because I have a connection to every one of his films, right? And the way he 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 sort of talks about each of these movies using the voice of you know, the, the footage that he recorded 
with his first video cameras, right? His first behind the scenes, like trailer conversations with his cast members and like all of, of that to build the story about each of the movies that he worked on. I, I think was, uh, it, it was a trip down memory lane for me, right? I, I found myself really thinking about like, what was I doing in my life? As he's reflecting on his life, I'm thinking, who was I dating when I saw this movie? You know, what was, it, it was a, it was a real gift, I think, for that. Um, I I found m- a much greater affinity for him, as you say, like he was just an easier guy even to like after hearing this through, you know, his own or seeing it through his eyes, using the voice of his son to actually narrate the thing in Val's first person was inspired because his son's voice is Val Kilmer at like 22. It sounds like a very young Val Kilmer. Yeah. Unreal. It was unreal. I think they really outed some things like I I mean, I knew there were issues with Brando on Dr. Moreau and Dr. Moreau was not a great film. (laughs) Um, But then the behind the scenes footage of that other guy dressed up as Brando (laughs) like in the movie. uh, Right. I, I. I that was like legit confirmation of rumors that we've heard for years that this was um, this was going on. And uh, I love that, you know, the turn the camera off. You know, I'm not turning the camera off because I'm recording what you told us is not what's happening here. And I, I thought that was, you know, that that was an example of him turning the tables on what we think about him and his personality is sort of mercurial kind of demanding prima donna personality. But really, it was the right thing to do it i i think and so i i found him i felt like i found it really quite touching i felt like there was a little bit of him being uh you know sticking it to frankenheimer um yeah a little unfairly because i'm like you know you think it was unfair i think it was not necessarily unfair i think frankenheimer was not not handling things well coming in on a film like that that's a mess and and having to deal with such such difficulty in so many aspects i couldn't help but feel bad for frankenheimer just trying to you know salvage the whole ship that was already sinking Mm -hmm. Uh, so i i I don't think i fault frankenheimer as much as probably some of the studio um heads who were who put him on there said you got to get this thing working it sounded like brando was very frustrated because he wanted more creative input on the project and that was completely taken away from him and yeah, Kilmer felt like he was a little bit like, uh, I don't know, when he was saying his stuff, it felt like he was using it a, a, a little bit to leverage, you know, being a little a little bit of a dick. But, you know, you, was- you might you might think that Kilmer's activities there were in preparation of this documentary 40 years hence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's he was doing that for legacy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, no, it, uh, but I mean, a lot of interesting stories throughout and a lot of tragedy, you know, in his life, just the you know, dealing with the financial situations that had happened and everything. But I think what was just inspiring was just hearing him, his kind of view on the world and how he had kind of come to, come to terms with stuff. And I mean, yeah, he's dealing with a lot of difficulties, but he's doing everything he can to just kind of keep moving forward, whether it's his art or his public appearances or whatever, whatever it is as difficult as it can be and and it does take a toll we see you know how much it can take a toll just doing some of these sorts of public appearances sometimes but uh i don't know i i, I think that it was still it was still pretty inspiring I'm, I'm i'm glad i watched it yeah me too i think if you're not a fan of val kilmer this isn't a documentary for you it's too long it and it's a little long uh, yeah 
and and it's uh it tells an awful lot of insider story that if you don't if you don't care about it it's it's not i don't think it's a standalone thing yeah i i couldn't get anybody else in my house to to jump in on it nobody cared <laughs> so <laughs> it was for me that's yeah. fine yeah uh all right so real genius um we meet Mitch and Chris. Chris is uh, Val Kilmer. He is the brilliant mind who has been at this school and uh, was at one point the leader of the team, and he's sort of uh, gone off the deep end. And then Mitch, the 15-year-old protege, right. shows up. The 15-year-old genius mm-hmm. who comes on board. It's an interesting setup for the film, and and I want to talk a little bit about the the structure, because when you see a film like this where we start off largely following mitch mitch is you know invited to come to school here by hathaway the head of the department who you know i mean pretty brilliantly and maliciously portrayed (laughs) william atherton is so funny bill atherton is incredible some of the delivery that he has i mean just small things but right out of the gate when he is talking to mitch at the science fair and just the way that he throws out derogatory comments that are, are, you know, not read very well by people like Mitch's parents. Or it's so funny at the science fair, it's like, you know, all these fans of these people like Professor Hathaway who are coming up and trying to get him to sign things. It was it was a very funny way they portrayed that, but just the way that Atherton played it, he's such a good job at being just this awful person. I loved watching him. But we meet Mitch, and it definitely seems like this is going to be Mitch's story. And then shortly after, we meet Chris as he's kind of touring a a potential job. And we get a sense of kind of this goofiness that he has, that he doesn't take anything seriously anymore. But it's interesting because obviously Val Kilmer, though, especially the way he plays Chris Knight, is so fun and interesting that it draws you in right away. But really, it's like, well, is Mitch our protagonist or is it Chris? And, you know, I thought about this for a little while. And is Mitch our protagonist, but Chris is a supporting character and he's far more interesting. Are the, were the writers confused about the lead? And we can talk about this a little bit, see what you think. But I think that, you know, there is a case where you will, this is less common, but where you actually split the main character and the protagonist into two separate characters. And you're seeing the eyes of the story told through the main character, but the protagonist is the one who's actively changing uh, or is changing others in the script. And I think that that's the case here. We saw that like in Shawshank Redemption, where Red is our main character. We see the story through his eyes, but Andy Dufresne is kind of the protagonist of the story. And I think here, we're seeing the story through Mitch's eyes largely, but Chris is the one who has a character arc and is the one who's kind of changing others, including Mitch, as we go along, right? He's the one who is this goofball because he saw Hollyfield in his pajamas in the steam tunnels and had freaked out because of what he learned about how the school was kind of using him, what he was doing to kill people. And so Chris kind of went the other way. But over the course of the story, he learns that there's also a dark side to just being too silly when everything's taken away from him. And and so then he has to kind of refocus himself. And so I think that that's my new read on this film, which is a much more complex way of writing a story because of the way that those characters kind of end up kind of moving over the course of the story. I don't know. What do you think about all that? There is a narrative inversion, right? I mean, it happens right in the middle of the second act, and it happens when Mitch, he sort of reaches the end of his arc when he freaks out and is, you know, and has his call to his mother recorded where he's he's crying and he says he's going to leave. Mitch and 
Chris have this conversation. The other night, I needed your help, and all you wanted to do was part. I did help you. I tried to help you relax. Being snubbed by beauticians is not my idea of relaxing. Student beauticians. You know, I thought this place was going to be different, but it's just the same. In high school, they stuffed me in a mailbox. Did I tell you that? My teachers disliked me because I was smarter than they were. The students hated me because I blew the bell curve. Does that sound familiar? Mitch, I was just like you. My mother used to dress me in white shirts and hush puppies and made me carry a briefcase guaranteeing that a girl would never talk to me. And when I first came here for three years, I studied all the time. You? Yeah. And then one night, sitting in this chair right here, I had a vision. What? Hollyfeld. The guy in the closet? Laszlo Hollyfeld. And I followed him into the closet, down into the steam tunnels. And there I saw the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. What? Hollyfeld in his pajamas. So? So? I talked to him. You did? Yeah. And he used to be the number one stud around here in the 70s. Smarter than you and me put together. Well, so what happened? Did he crack? Yes, Mitch, he cracked severely. Why? He loved his work. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that, but that's all he did. He loved solving problems. He loved coming up with the answers. But he thought that the answers were the answer for everything. All science, no philosophy. So then one day, someone tells him that the stuff that he was making was killing people. So what's your point? Are you saying that I'm going to end up in a steam tunnel? Yeah. What? You are. If you keep up like this. Mitch, you don't need to run away from here. When you're smart, people need you. You can use your mind creatively. Yeah. I notice you don't study too hard. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah, but if I stay, what should I do? First thing you should do is get even with Kent. It's a moral imperative. Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> Essentially, Chris takes control of the narrative, right? That That's the, the pivot point on the film, where Mitch is now, oh, okay, you're right. Maybe I do have a friend here. Maybe I will stay, and maybe we will get even with Kent. But Chris goes from being this comic relief character in the first half of the movie to becoming the character we're interested in in the second half of the movie. He takes absolute control of the narrative, and it becomes his story. It becomes a story we care about him being kicked out, potentially, uh, being failed out of school. It becomes him getting uh, turning the tables on uh, the the military project and, and leading the charge with his team of merry uh, academics to, to get onto this spaceship and foil the test. It becomes him solving the central problem of the laser, right? That's the protagonist's job. So if that doesn't define who the protagonist is, that it is Chris at the by the end of the movie, I don't know what else does. To that point, the the way that Chris is, as you said, so much kind of just like this this goofball in the first half of the film, I think that is him as the protagonist of the film, largely kind of being set up as the person who's demonstrating to Mitch about, you know, you're here in school, but you don't have to take everything seriously. And I think that there's an interesting 
element that we're learning about kind of what college is about. And it's trying to find that balance. I think that's part of what the story is, right? You know, are you working yeah. too hard or are you not working hard enough? Laszlo is a perfect example of having worked too hard and then realized the detrimental elements that could come of that. And now he's living in the in the steam tunnels, kind of like completely isolated. Chris has taken, he's like, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be the complete opposite. And now he's not working hard enough. And he's, I mean, he's doing well. He's incredibly smart, but he's also just kind of skating by. And that's kind of what he's demonstrating to Mitch in that first half. Yeah, you don't need to take it all so seriously. Just lighten up. It's not that bad. But yeah, there's that turn in the middle where all of a sudden Chris now has to take on the mantle of, we are going to have to be a little more serious. And we, it is important to actively find a balance in here. And I think that's an interesting theme that we have here that I, I find pretty valuable. Well, it's a Goldilocks story, right? Like, we're trying to find a way to get Mitch to be just right. We know that Chris is, he's too much. And Laszlo is too much on the other way, at the other direction. And Mitch is, is our central sort of nervous system. And, and I think for me, that, that works. I can understand how seeing this on the first time, you might, you might think, I, I don't know what this, I don't know who I'm supposed to care about in this movie. I don't know what makes, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but, but for me, I think it, you know, once you realize that essentially all three of these guys are the protagonist, and it's it's a journey of normalizing and sort of rationalizing their experience over the course of the arc of the film. Um, it it feels right at home. Well, again, I don't know if I'd say they're all three of the protagonists. I think it's largely Chris who's the one who makes the choice to make these changes sure. and everything. But yes, I think it's a reflection that we see of that protagonist in these other characters. Because even Laszlo, as things as Chris starts making his change, Laszlo comes out of his shell a little mm-hmm. bit and and starts talking and and being part of that group again. And I think that's what's important about the the changes that Chris goes through. I can visualize a movie like Real Genius being made where it's one performer who is wandering between all three of these these things this it is an, a journey that a person can take figuring out how to balance all of these competing initiatives and and i can see that you know i i happen to to really like the way these traits are split out between these three guys and i like that we land on chris because he's so charismatic and because he becomes such an anchor for mitch to come back to center right yeah that works for me. Well, yeah, I think it makes for a really interesting character arc. And it is a more challenging way to craft a script where you actually are doing this with these characters, where it's not just the protagonist and main character all in one character, which is so often how we see stories. It's it's a more complex way of writing, uh, writing a script and putting it together. I think they do a good job here. But what's interesting about this, this story is, and what I think makes it stand the test of time, is that... It's not just a film about smart people that we care about, but Martha Coolidge and team actively worked hard to make it feel authentic and real. And that's, I think, an interesting element in here that I don't think a lot of people directing 80s comedies were after at that point in time. Well, yeah, because it's a it is a movie that is not like uh, other school movies, right? Porky's Fast Times. Revenge of the Nerds, you know, on the on the legacy of Animal House, right? This is a movie that I I think I said earlier, it's a movie that punches up. When uh, the producers came to her and said, we want you to direct this, we feel like you're going to bring something to this. And 
I mean, her, her quote, this was like, I don't know, I think around the time they were doing like a 30-year reunion or something, she said, I had been offered so many gross, boy-oriented teen comedies. Nothing against it, but that's all I was offered. When this script first came to me, even though it was about smart people, it really wasn't that smart yet. It was still in that same category. I was just skeptical and turned it down. Twice, actually. This was the script that Neil Israel and Pat Proft had put together. And she said, it's not there. And that's why uh, the producer, and I think it was Brian Grazier, actually, who brought in Peter Tarakve as the person to do some rewrites on it. And that's where they started actually finding the smarts of the story. Because Coolidge said, if I'm going to do this, I want to really do this about these real people that make this story feel real. I want the tech to be as real as possible. I want what they're working on to be as real as possible. And if I can get all of that in here and I make it a story about these real people, then I will do it. And that's what it took. And Brian Grazer agreed with her. And that's the work that they put in to get this, uh, to get this uh, script put together the way they did. It's it's fantastic. And the fact that so much of it takes place in and around Caltech with Caltech students who are consulting. It's got this sort of Caltech vibe to it that I think makes it uh, levels it up. Yeah, even though it's Pacific tech in the movie. Yes, right. right. And actually, I think Caltech wouldn't let them film there. So I don't think it was actually filmed at Caltech, but they tried to make it as real as possible. And even like the the dorm that they're living in, like it was crafted after a real Caltech dorm that had uh yeah. graffiti all over the walls and everything like it was it was the uh the Dabney house and so it, it's interesting how they really went they did so many Caltech there's actually a web page i think it's archived now but you can still track it down we'll put it in the show notes of all the references to Caltech that are in this movie that uh, that people from Caltech had found and and kind of created this huge list of all the things from um like there's the the acronym DEI pops up a couple times. One, it's the Drain Experts Inc. When the the truck that they're using, and uh, the other one is the um, the company that is sponsoring Hathaway's TV show. Everything Darlington Electronic Instruments <laughs> DEI. Uh, it, it's interpreted as Dabney eats it. It's a whole Caltech thing, but it's like that sort of thing. Like these in jokes are all over this movie, which yeah. is really funny. And I'm sure if you go to Caltech. You probably appreciate it that much more beyond just the culture. The the fact that all of the technical stuff was as legit as they made that that Coolidge like was able to realize her yeah. intention for making the the technical stuff legit. The fact that they had a a, a physics professor uh, from USC, uh, Martin Gunderson, on you know as a consultant making the laser stuff sound real. Right. Making making it all work like I I think that lends to we have this comedy, we have this culture, and then we have these these scenes that that elevate the conversation. Right. That bring you back to to recognizing that these are real geniuses. Yeah. Right. That's the whole point. Uh, I loved it. It's funny that, uh, you know, we did our Star Trek series and that was brought up often as as a film and a franchise that has inspired so many people to go into science and have created some of the things that you would have seen in the Star Trek films. Same thing with this film. And that's what's so interesting is, you know, Martha Coolidge has said, you know, over the years, how many people have come to her and said, that movie uh, made me want to be a scientist and got me excited about it. 
And the whole thing with the laser, that they theoretically came up with stuff, as you were saying, and this whole idea of this frozen gas laser, it was a real idea. The theoretics were there, but they hadn't figured it out. But two years later, because of the movie, it inspired people to actually come up with and invent a frozen gas laser. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, it's, it's very cool that they really did so much in this film to just make it as real as possible. And what's funny is the one thing that they put into the script that they didn't look at as a real element was the government actually exploiting the school and the students to actually work on uh, weapons and tools that they were going to use in some way or another. That was something that the screenwriters and Martha Coolidge actually thought was a fiction. And only later <laughs> did they subsequently start hearing from people who saw the movies like, oh, that happened to me. I was, you know, I went yeah. through all of school and I realized after the fact that the, that the what I had been working on was being used by the government for something. Oh, my God, <sighs> so funny. I, I've never I've never had that experience. <laughs> Nothing I've done has ever been exploited by the military <laughs> that, you know. Yeah, right. right. Yes. Uh, well, okay. So that that's that's a lot of the technical stuff. The only other technical thing that I want to really celebrate is the popcorn. I legit did not think that that was popcorn at the end. The setup right. is that's the the big prank at the end. They put this giant, uh, essentially a giant glorified Jiffy Pop right. in the middle <laughs> of Hathaway's entry hall, and they position the lasers instead of hitting their test targets and the military test at the end they take the uh, laser and shoot it at hathaway's house and it pops the popcorn and the popcorn there's is so voluminous that it destroys the house it com- pops the windows and the the frame and the house breaks down i thought surely that is not actually popcorn andy they popped a lot of popcorn for this movie did they ever 140 tons tons of popcorn <laughs> that is so much popcorn they it was i they, love it the story of the popcorn is crazy and I, yeah i didn't realize it was all real popcorn either it, you know i look at it i'm like well surely they just came up with something because that's a lot of whatever it was yeah. this was the days before all the digital effects that you could do and so they actually right. did something i just didn't think it was really popcorn but yeah they had they had um, 40 tons of it inside the soundstage and then another 100 tons um, the, in tractor trailers. And they would use these vacuum machines to suck it out of the trucks, load it into the house, blow it up out of the house. They said one take took 15 seconds and they had 15 good seconds in, on each shot of popcorn coming out. You couldn't go back. You had to keep going because then you had to take the entire rest of the day to clean it up, to suck all the popcorn back into the trucks. To The house was built on hydraulics so that it could kind of come back together from its broken self to its whole self. And it was insane. The process of making the popcorn, though, was like was a bear because they, they were popping popcorn 24 hours a day to the point where the oil got so hot that uh, they had a company that was helping them do it. And the company's factory burned down. Because they didn't realize that when you were running it 24 hours a day, the oil would get way too hot and it would actually create a problem. And all sorts of other problems like the the popcorn dust in the air started catching fire and they had to create a whole bunch of fake popcorn. Well, not fake popcorn, but they had to treat it with stuff so that like the birds wouldn't come and eat it and stuff. So all the stuff that would come outside 
they had to very specifically separate between the other stuff because some of it was covered in a toxic chemical to, or to keep it that yellow look. Yeah. Um, so they had to make sure that nobody, no animals, no people ate the inedible stuff. You could only eat the non-toxic stuff, but they had to really police that. I just can't even imagine how complicated yeah. all of this was. As, as simple as popcorn. Yeah. Like, it sounds like such a simple premise. Uh, guy hates popcorn. Let's make a lot of popcorn and make him deal with it. It's so simple, but months of popcorn popping. It's fantastic. Well, and that's what was fun is because they actually came up with the idea. They were trying to figure out what can we do for kind of the end of the script that would kind of make all of this kind of give the big solution that we needed. And so Martha Coolidge, they hadn't actually figured that out for the script. And so uh, they actually had a kind of a contest and Ron Cobb, who was uh, one of the kind of the futurist artists that they had. He had done a lot of stuff with Star Wars, stuff like that. He actually won the contest, and he had the whole idea of doing this popcorn thing, which I just think is is so much fun. And it's so memorable, and that's something I think is so creative about about the way, because like there's no violence in it or anything. It's like, that's mm-hmm. what I think is so smart about the script, and maybe it's another element that makes this film kind of stand the test of time, is you have these these geniuses who are part of this school, their professor is exploiting them to make this laser for the government. They find out. So what do they do? They get back at them by one, sabotaging the experiment. So it's going to fail and the government is not going to use it. And two, they get back at their professor by blowing up popcorn in his house. They don't, they don't, it's, they're not hurting him or anything, but he had been, you know, skimming the money from this experiment and what the government was paying him to build this house. So they, they find a way to get back at him where it's really going to hurt the most. I just think it's very smart. It's very smart. And it's just a prank. It's a really good prank. Yeah. Of course, in, in reality, they'd all go to jail and it would be horrible. I'm sure. <laughs> it would be just Thank horrible. God it's just a movie. It, that does take us to Kent. Uh, and, and I feel like Kent's final bow in the movie where he's standing in the entry hall and says, Okay, God! Let me have it! <laughs> As the laser comes down and starts popping the popcorn is brilliant. Um, and uh, let's, let's talk just briefly about Kent, uh, because I, I really like how they use Kent in this movie. It, it is a little bit, uh, I don't know, Guantanamo. <laughs> I mean, they, they drug him and they put a transmitter in his braces and they torture him by making him think he's gone crazy. Um, but it's all for humor and pranks. So that's okay. And, and it's Robert Prescott who, you know, I, being the Tom Hanks fan that I am, have really grown up with him as the nemesis in Bachelor Party. And he's yeah. just great as the pompous rich boy in that film. He's He worked with Martha Coolidge a year before this on National Lampoon's Joy of Sex and uh, comes onto this film as such a fantastic nerd with these braces. And this is something else I love about this film is that you're not seeing these it's not like Revenge of the Nerds where you're taking like the nerds versus the jocks or something like that. And and you're creating, you're playing with these tropes that I think just end up kind of belittling a lot of the, the strength that smart people can just kind of bring. I mean, as you know, I, I just like the way that this film plays it where it's smart people rivalries and, you know, just have Kent as this other smart person who just doesn't like the fact that uh, Chris takes so much of the glory. And does what he can to, I mean, yeah, they're playing pranks, but he's like, you know, sabotaging the experiment and stuff like that. That whole bit at the end with him talking to Jesus, uh, 
it's just very funny. I mean, all of the bits of him, and and I just, <laughs> I I don't know. I love the way that he talks to him. Like he's just he's pushing even even when Jesus is talking to him, he's being a little pushy. And that's what's so yeah. great about the way that Kent is. Yeah, I, I think so too. He's he he makes it easy to feel like this is deserved. Right, deserve yeah. treatment, and apparently the apparently the practical joke that they played on him, where they put his car in his room, was actually done at Caltech. Another Caltech joke, where some people had actually completely disassembled a car and reassembled it in somebody's room in completely working order. Oh my goodness, it's perfect. It's perfect. Can't even imagine. So going back to this idea of a movie about these smart people, I mean, do you think that that's one of the things that makes it? stand the test of time? I mean, it's a film, I think, that really holds up well on on rewatch. I mean, do you think that's why? Or or what do you think it is about this particular film that makes it work so well? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a large part of it. I mean, you think about sort of the um, Revenge of the Nerds was a movie Oof. that was made when nerds were uh, was, you know, was derogatory, right? Um, and this movie is sort of an answer to that and says, hey, you know what? Smart people don't have to be the brunt of jokes. And we can have a movie that takes place solely in a community of smart people, and it can be funny. They can have rivalries. They can do all that stuff. And then over the years, culture changes around appreciation of straight-up raw technical intelligence and application of technology. And I think the movie sort of presages that, right? The movie was already ready for an appreciation of genius by the time the rest of us got there. And I think that's one of the things that makes it stand the test of time. It's sort of it is the test of time, right? It's a movie that that doesn't make fun of it, but celebrates something that historically was easy to revile. And yeah. now we don't have that. We have no well, no jocks in this movie. No, but I, I mean, I just just to clarify, we know that these sorts of tropes still play in movies. Yeah. You know, it's like there still is the nerd jock tropes. I mean, I, I unfortunately like that these tropes, I, I think a lot of writers find them just so easy to fall into that it still happens that way. But I think the reason that this this works is because it doesn't play into those. Well, and I think it plays into them very differently now. I think even the the movies that are made for younger audiences, like the first Fear Street movie, right? It's a movie that has some of these jock versus, you know, not jock uh, tropes in it, but they always play at the expense of the jock, right? And I, I guess you could say the same thing about nerds in the end. That's, of course, the nerds win the day. Um, yeah. But but these are, are tropes that now I think you expect to be played at the expense of the dumb jock trope. Yeah. And and I don't so, think that was the case all along. No, I don't think so. But again, it's also playing into the dumb jock trope. And yeah. I just think that there's there are smarter ways that writers can do that. And I, yeah. I, I appreciate when people can find ways to do it without having to fall into tropes, period. Yeah. I agree. So, okay. Yeah. What did we did we did I address that point or did we hijack did, our yeah. own conversation? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think so. I mean, I do think that this film does stand the test of time, and I think it is because they're just they are punching above their weight. They're yeah. they're trying to make a film that feels real. It and I buy into these characters in this situation. The one thing that I do get a little weirded out by is the fact that in this college, yes, we have this fifteen year old really smart kid 
and uh, and he connects which i love the fact that that he finds this connection with jordan uh, but i also i'm like but he's 15 and like the, it just felt like and i know it's college but it's like god are they pushing this 15 year old to start sleeping with people it just seemed a little weird to me yeah i know but i still thought it was funny <laughs> <laughs> She she was also fantastic. Um, oh, I, I so great! Really, yes, really yeah. love uh, that was uh, Michelle Mayrink. Yeah, who also was in uh, Valley Girl. She played Susie. Yep, she's just and fantastic. She was also in uh, Revenge of the Nerds, and I think that's probably an interesting comparison. If you look at her here playing a nerdy character versus there playing a nerdy character. This is a character that feels real. She feels like she is on a spectrum of some sort, but it's never played for anything other than she's just another person and she's incredibly intelligent. And what a joy that was. Like, I loved the way that her character is portrayed in this film. Yeah, me too. I I really liked it. I love that she's sanding the floors of her dorm in the middle of the night. That was just (laughs) such a high point for me. (laughs) She's just yeah, right. What's interesting about her character is that, well, one, she was inspired again by a real Caltech student. And this character actually went on to inspire Gadget in Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. Okay, that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't even think I've seen it. What? You've never seen that show? No. Well, anyway, Gadget, she was the genius chipmunk in their group who is always inventing things. Okay. So, that's you know, I guess point. you'd have to have seen the show, I, too. It means nothing to me. Yeah. Well, now All you right. know. All right. Okay, the other thing I want to talk about is the 80s. <laughs> I've got a thing. So this is another movie that does not that I don't find 80s offensive. Right. It gives me the sweet kind of nostalgia that I I like because the movie is not it's not a movie that is working hard to leverage the production as a film that's supposed to take place in the 80s. Right. It is historic. In that, you know, when you look back on it, oh, how quaint it is. Look, there's a he has a drone in his room. We hadn't seen that before. Now it's, you know, not novel anymore. But but in terms of the dress and the way everything is is designed and the way they work together, it it didn't I didn't find it terribly offensive. And I, I think I have a counterpoint to the 80s stuff. I watched Streets of Fire this weekend. Okay, Andy, that's so hard to watch. Because it's a movie that anchors so much in the 80s color, tone, sound, music, everything in a way that I find aggressively, vomitously nostalgic. To me, this is these are the opposite ends of the 80s spectrum that they lean so hard in living at the extremes of the time in which we exist that it becomes dated the moment, moment it's released. This movie is the story first and that that i think is is a good example of films that are going to turn me off right away and those that are not <laughs> like i can't i don't like the 80s i haven't seen streets of fire so i can't speak <gasps> to it um but uh i know it's 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 on my list i'd, I'd love to watch it at some point i just haven't you, d- you should it. you don't need but, to you don't even need to say that you'd love to watch it i'm no, serious I would. man because it, it is a, I know that it's a little bit divisive as far as people who love it and people who don't love it. Uh, and so because of that, I am more inclined to watch it. Yeah. Because I just might love it. Well, you never that'd know. be par for the course. <laughs> but I, but I do appreciate, yes, I, I appreciate your point about how this film just feels like it's there in the 80s. It doesn't feel like they are 
doing what they can to point out all of the 80s craziness or anything. You know, and I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess to that end, I, I feel that it works. And, and if anything, I just really enjoy that Coolidge enjoyed putting uh, Chris in such a variety of, of quirky uh, shirts and just things that he was wearing. Because <laughs> if anything inspired me with, about the 80s in this film, it's the shirts that Chris is wearing. Because now I would like to get my own collection. Of all of all. the shirts. Yeah. No, exactly. I agree. And I think the shirts, the shirts work and the shirts work because they are, can also be artifacts of nostalgia in a positive way. And I, I like yeah. that. So yeah. there's a little bit of a low point for me in terms of the, the scene that is dated. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? The scene that is, it just screams dated. Is it the the Tanning International? It is the Tanning International Party. Uh, it feels okay. like such a weird, isolated moment of just weirdness in this movie. Otherwise, a, a movie that is otherwise shunned sexist tropes and gender tropes. And in this sequence, it is uh, it, it just celebrates them in in a kind of raw way that I, I find it just sticks out to me in this movie. I suppose I can see where you're coming from with that. And I, I, you know, certainly say, okay, you know, we're bringing in the beauty school uh, women to kind of party with us and they're all in bikinis and all the guys are just in their, in their clothes. I, I can see that there is some of that here. At the same time, I think it's interesting that you have this group of, of smart kids at this one school and students of beauty school at the other. and they're all just getting along and you don't have like they're, you know, the, the guys are talking to the women and everything. And I was like, they're actually making an effort to allow for, you know, it to not be just another opportunity for more jokes about, you know, the, the dingy girls and the, you know, or making fun of the guys cause they're just smart nerds. They actually were just partying and having a conversation. And that was something that I did appreciate about it, that it, it didn't have to be just kind of a typical college thing where you're making fun of either of these groups, because you probably could make fun of both of them in other films pretty easily. And, and I do think that there, the, the high points for me are that the, the, um, you know, the students don't know how to, to do it. And that when, when, she comes in with her rebreather and starts using this party as a place to test her new scuba inventions. Uh, I, I think that's just delightful. Like, I, I think that is that is a really fun moment and, and also kind of a dark one that demonstrates how hard it is for these students to separate from their work just generally uh, and, and to do it in kind of a funny context. And, and, you know, but I think it also speaks to the that kind of way that Jordan and Mitch, in particular, are kind of the outsiders, but they still find a way to still connect in this environment. Yeah. Speaking of Mitch, I did want to ask you what you think of uh, Gabriel Jarrett, who plays him, because he was a very young face at the time of this film. He was born in 1970, so he really is like 15, playing this part of this 15-year-old genius. Uh, how does he work for you? Did, you? did you kind of buy him in the role? I totally did. I never had any question. I thought he was great. I thought he was great in the high points when he was seriously nerding out in the lab. I thought he was great when he was, you know, having his uh, sensitive conversation with his mom and dad. Uh, and I, I thought he was great in his interactions with um, 
you know, with with Chris. I think I think they had a, a fun relationship. Why am I gathering you had some issues? No, actually, I don't. But but what's interesting, and this goes back to that point I brought up at the beginning about kind of that the way that they split the the main character and the protagonist is that you really need a main character who can kind of carry that role. And I, you know, if anything, I would say there are times that Val Kilmer's personality and the kind of the aura that he brings as a presence to Chris Knight in the film can overpower Mitch sometimes. And I think that may be why I brought that up at the beginning, because at times it feels like, are are they thinking that Chris is the main character here? Because it seems like uh, Mitch is the main character. But I, I just think that it's because, you know, you've got a really powerful character. And a, and I think it's just, it. it's because the character and the actor, I think, are just so young that it works in the part because of that. But also, it's riding that line of always just on the edge of being overwhelmed by what Chris is bringing. That's interesting. I, um... Hmm. I, I'm not sure how to how to respond to that because I didn't that that wasn't a, a feeling I got. I felt like it was very much a yin yang between these two characters, um, and and I think you're right. Uh, Val Kilmer can come off as just like irredeemably untouchable in in movies, right? He's got a lot of perfect going on, and he has a very big screen energy. But I do think that one of the things that Jarrett is able to do is have a big retreat energy, right? When he's uncomfortable and looks uncomfortable, he telegraphs it large. Like the the drone scene sure. when they first are introducing one another, like he's he plays big against big. And and uh I, I think he can do that both sort of on offense and on defense. And I, I actually think he did a he did a really good job, especially for being as young as he was in this movie. Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with you. I just think that it can get close, but I don't think it ever becomes a problem for me. Yeah, And I mean, I, I think, you know, to your point, look at the scene when it becomes Mitch's turn to kind of ta- have a heart-to-heart with Chris and kind of get him back on track. Yeah, on the rooftop, right? You're talking about the rooftop scene. I, I think it's I, I think you're absolutely right, right? That is an opportunity for, for um, you know, for Mitch to be a, a bigger sort of emotional uh, support and and that it telegraphs every time. What you doing? Self-realization. I was thinking of the immortal words of Socrates who said, I drank what? <laughs> Is there something wrong? Hathaway's going to flunk me out of school. Why? I screwed up. What are you going to do? I guess I'll leave. You can't do that. You'll, you'll, you'll be a failure. Thank you, Mitch. <laughs> I mean, you just can't leave. You owe me ten bucks. Can't quit now. For no other reason than just to see a five megawatt laser fire. Just once. That would be nice. You gotta finish what you start. Who said that? (laughs) You know that. That's right, Mitch, but that is no way to motivate somebody. 
<laughs> You've got to get even with Jerry Hathaway. It's a moral imperative. It's a good point. And I don't think we ever lose him in the group either, right? Like, it, it would be, um, I, I think, pretty easy to get lost in John Grease, um weirdness, right, as Laszlo. And when Laszlo and Chris are on screen together, there's a lot of big energy in those scenes in its own weird bit of awkwardness. I never lose Mitch. I never feel like Mitch is given second seat. And I think that's, you know, to Jarrett's credit that he's able to do that. I do think I sometimes lose uh, Kamayama, right? Mark Kamayama as, as Ick. I, I think sometimes he's, you know, he's brought in and made central when they need some particular. He is not a, a central character, and I do like him so much. And I think that just speaks to supporting characters, yeah. right? I think right. that they, they can kind of disappear. I mean, you know, how funny it is to see, like, Dean Devlin pop up as a yeah. supporting character, too. Right. Uh, it, it's just kind of funny. But yeah, you, those those kind of bit characters, um, I do think they kind of float in and out as needed, but it's it's the nature of it. But bit characters, insofar as like the, this is the heist team, right? It's it's the three principles that represent you know the extremes of Mitch, Chris, and and Laszlo, and you know Michelle and and Mark, right? The, the, it's the five of them that make a unit. And I think if anything for me feels like a shortcoming, it's that I, I feel like they're teasing me with the creation of the team, and the team never really coalesces. And and I would I would like that. I would like that in this movie to feel like this is kind of an oceans movie, right? I'd like to see them come together and really work together as a team. And it just feels so much like utility players coming in and out as needed. I, I think that Jordan certainly feels like she's of the team. If anyone does get left out, it's it. Because Jordan, I feel like she's generally there a lot more present in the course of the story. So I, I don't have an issue with that as much. What does she invent? She's the one who does the the coding that they use when oh, they're on putting the chip? The stuff. Yeah, that's my recollection. Okay, that was it. And then Ick yeah. does the sleeping he, gas. Oh, she also he, does the dentistry. Yeah, and 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 Ick also is the one who you know is on the scooter that tracks yes. down uh, where where Hathaway goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, so, so they have a job. Yeah. They have yeah. Jobs. So they're they're all yeah, they're all they're doing there. stuff. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll give it. I'll give it to you. Okay. All right. The only other thing that I wanted to bring up was <laughs> that outside of this story, I do think it's funny that Mythbusters actually was taken with the film and they wanted to prove that you can pop popcorn with a laser. And they did prove that you can pop popcorn with a laser. There's no such thing still as a five megawatt laser, but still they did prove that you can actually uh, do this. So again, just speaking to the film, and how they were really kind of working to do as much honest uh, science as they could. It is, in fact, possible. I am now looking for that video right now. How to make <laughs> instant popcorn. Uh, we will put that link in the show notes for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Myth busted. All right. We will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Handsome Andy Nelson. Music by A.M. Beef, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at thenumbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. 
If your podcast allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. This film is so popular that there has been talk uh, quite a bit about uh, sequels, about remakes, about TV spinoffs, things like that. It's never actually come to fruition, though. And I don't know. After rewatching this, I hope it never does, because I felt like, you know, this just it works the way it is. It doesn't need more. Um, as recent as September 2014, there was a potential ser- TV series in the works by NBC, um, trying to do it with Sony TV, Happy Madison, and Three Arts Entertainment. They worked on it for apparently three years, and that's about the end of it. But what's interesting is that there had been talks of doing a sequel. Val Kilmer said that he would reprise the role of Chris Knight as late as 2016. Um, but, you know, obviously that never came to fruition. And now, I think, with everything going on in Val's life, I don't foresee that happening. That'd be interesting if they, if they, if if he were, because he is, I I think he's, I don't know, it feels like he still had a credit, even as late as 2019, 2018, somewhere, which I think is fascinating. And I, I do think that in the spirit of geniuses, there is room for, I think, Val Kilmer to take on a kind of a Stephen Hawking-esque performance in a Real Genius sequel. I think he could play it. Yeah, I think he could, too. Uh, and you're right. I mean, he, geez, 2021, he's got a credit. Um, he's he's going to be in Top Gun Maverick as Iceman again. What is he doing? In, how is he? When did all these tracheotomies happen? Like, his two tracheotomies had to have been fairly recent if he was in, involved in filming Maverick. I have no idea when did that shoot 2018 2019 probably yeah because yeah. it I was mean, supposed to be I, released I think last it, year I, well i think it was around 2016 when all of the stuff went down as far as with his throat uh, or so he he didn't do any films at all between 2014 and 2017 so it would have been somewhere in that window of time i think that mm-hmm. that all of that would have happened so but yeah i mean he's he was in uh, jay and silent bob reboot uh i mean he's yeah he's been he has not stopped let's just say that he has not stopped he and and that's the one thing you can see like he has a, again a sort of irrepressible energy in, in the way he moves and lives and you watch him like skulking around hallways and stuff he he just has to cover his breathing tube when he speaks but he's still around so anyhow yeah, all right very much how to do it award season did do did, did anybody get in anything Yes, it did. Uh, This film had two wins, two other nominations. At the Paris Film Festival, Gabriel Jarrett, he tied for Best Actor with Taylor Malasse in The Silent One, and Martha Coolidge won the Grand Prix. Uh, At the Young Artist Awards, uh, Jarrett again was nominated for an exceptional performance by a young actor, but lost to River Phoenix in Explorers. I can probably see Mm -hmm. that. And it was nominated for Best Family Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical, but lost to The Heavenly Kid, which is interesting because that is a film I watched a lot when I was young. And I doubt that one holds up nearly as well as this one. Yes, I'll bet. I'll bet. I'd be curious to revisit that one. I did not watch this with the family, but I'm now eager to make it a family movie pick. I think the rest of my family's going to like it. I think so, too. I said, I'm watching this documentary about Val Kilmer to my wife, and she said, oh, Val Kilmer. (sighs) Who was that? (laughs) I don't even know what to do with that kind of stuff in my house. All right. It is what it is. How to do with the box office. (laughs) 
Coolidge's fifth feature film, she had a decent Hollywood budget to work with, certainly as compared to the last film of hers that we talked about. This one was $8 million, or $19 million in today's dollars. I wonder how much of that went to popcorn. <laughs> This was released August 7th, 1985, opposite Summer Rental, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and My Science Project. Oddly enough, it was also a week right after Weird Science opened. A lot of science movies right in this window of time. Clearly, the smart kids were in vogue. This movie opened seventh place, and unfortunately, it never did much better than that. Did stay in theaters for about 20 weeks and ended up grossing $12.9 million, or $30.8 million in today's dollars. So it still had an adjusted profit per finished minute. Of $111,000. It wins the Apthom. It did. It, it did well. I mean, it did okay Fantastic. enough to let Mar- Martha Coolidge keep working. Yeah. Uh, well, I love this movie. I love that it is where it is. I love that we got to talk about it in this series. And uh, what a heartwarming retrospective uh, for Val himself. Yeah, I'm really glad that I've revisited this one. I I, I think that it's a film that I, I, when I first saw it, I don't think I gave it as much credit as I should have. Because now, I, as I rewatched it, I'm like, God, there's... There's just a lot more going on here that's interesting with these with these students in college, and I yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, we're going to come back and talk about our reviews over at Letterboxd. But first, we're wrapping up our series of 80s comedies from Heckerling and Coolidge next week with Amy Heckerling's 89 film, Look Who's Talking. Have you watched it? We want to know what you thought. Send us your thoughts in a 30-second audio clip, and we'll get your review in the episode. Just email it to reviews at truestory.fm. It's the most natural thing in the world. No. Yes. No. What? How could this have happened? I take it this wasn't a planned pregnancy. It's a beautiful, magical experience. St. Jerome's Hospital. Ah! John Travolta. Come on, breathe deep, breathe deep. Try to help me just fight. Kirstie Alley. Give me some drugs. Oh, thank you a really lot. Now that is a little more like it. Hey, here's Mr. Hand here. Wow. And Bruce Willis as the voice of Mikey. Help! Help! Put me back in! Put me back in! So you're the one that's been kicking me. The one that ate all that spicy food. Now Mikey's mommy needs his help. I'm going to get you the best daddy there is. All right, I'm on the case, too. But when you think like this little guy... Boy, I gotta think about getting my own place. There's a lot to distract you. One of those little furry things over your eyes. No, no, let me grab one. Come here. There we go. Discover with Mikey the wonders of life. Fellas, listen, I got something cold and wet in my shorts down here. Guys, listen, fellas. The unexpected delights of family. Oh, yeah, she's gone. And the gratifying search. You know, that's breast milk. For the perfect daddy. Mikey does need a father. I just thought of someone perfect for you. You'll love him. Was that clown? I want you to be my daddy. And I'll tell mommy about it. You really think you're responsible enough to be a father? This is called driving. This ain't so tough. Mikey! Mikey! Well, I got this driving thing knocked. <laughs> Look who's talking. What a sweetie. You must be thinking the same thing I am. <laughs> lunch yeah right back at you babe mm. letterboxd andy mm-hmm. how did you decide to approach your review of this movie this week it i don't know i guess it's i find it funny that all of the films so far in this series i have really been pl- 
pleasantly surprised by. Like, I've really enjoyed all of them. And this falls right into that same pattern. And I feel like I'm going to land exactly where I did for all the other ones. I'm going to end up at four stars and a heart. Four stars and a heart. Okay. Jeez. I like this movie better than the other ones so far. And so I think four, maybe selling it a bit short. Is it a five-star movie? Yeah, probably not. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go predictably. I'm going to split that. Four and a half stars and a heart, please. I think that's worth it. Look at that. Well, that will land it over on Letterboxd on the Next Reels HQ page at, uh, you know, four and a quarter, but it'll bump up to four and a half in our in our ratings with a big old heart. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. Good stuff. So what did you think about Real Genius? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel on Discord, where we will be talking this week about this movie. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. I, the low reviews. I, I didn't pick a low review. I didn't either. They what? were. Mean? Just, yeah, and just, yeah, just very generic. Yeah, very generic. And also, I find it funny. After reading up on this film and doing the research on the film and finding out how hard they work to make it authentic, to read a bunch of low reviews of people who just don't believe the, like anything in the movie, <laughs> just because they don't know that work that went into the movie. Yeah. I find that. I, I just, today's a day I don't have patience for it. So that's all right. If you don't like the movie, fine. But if you get mad at the movie for fake news, okay, uh, then I'm not going to read the review. You're here. I so went, what did you go with? I went with five stars from the Brad McNeil. Brad, who, who likes the movie more than I do, apparently. Uh, it, who says, we all have a movie that won't age for us. This is mine. I was probably 11 when I saw this, and I'd never wanted to be someone more. I know I'd seen Top Secret, but Val Kilmer as Chris Knight was the sarcastic, earnest ladies' man genius that I thought I could be. There are a lot of nerd films from this era. Revenge of the Nerds, My Science Experiment, Weird Science. The difference in real genius to me is that there are no jocks. This is a college story of smart people versus smart people. I still revisit this every few years. I'm not convinced the appeal will still exist for new viewers, and I don't care. I know every line, every song, every moment. It's got Uncle Rico, the reporter from Die Hard, and an extremely blue-screened climax. I wish we'd gotten more Martha Coolidge comedies like this. <laughs> nice yeah and and to that point like i just i, I think this whole idea of smart people versus smart people introducing this caste system inside the microcosm of nerddom that that's that's what that's talk about this you know withstanding time yeah what, what do you got and also well also i just have to mention that uh your review brings up the music and tears for fears everybody wants to rule the world uh plays in this yeah and it's it's always it always strikes me as kind of, I, I love this song i love tears for fears and i it's such a great song but this song came out the year this movie opened so this likely was the first film that featuring used, this song yeah and it just like sometimes when you think about that it's like this was the first time some people might have been hearing this song it's just like yeah. kind of it's it's trippy yeah. 
Although I did read another one of the one star reviews was like, this is the most Ayn Randian film of all. Like, <laughs> when you're smart, people need you and everybody wants to rule the world. And um, it, it kind of exudes that mentality. <laughs> and for as someone who's does not truck with Rand, <laughs> like, I, I find that hard to read. I still enjoy yeah. the movie. What do you got? Well, I got a five star by Colby Miles, uh, who says between Dwight Eisenhower's last presidential address on the military industrial complex and real genius, we should have known better. But of course, we don't. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Uh, Miles. Rough so waters true. lie ahead. This is fun. Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we are going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 11, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Oh, our big 10th anniversary season featuring all female directors. Let's do this. All right, here we go. Horror debuts. I'm already stumped. Oh, wait, uh, The Lure. Wasn't that based on The Little Mermaid? It was. Nice. Very loosely, at least. Um, how about 10th anniversaries? Hmm. That's a tough one. So 2011 films. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Yep, that was it. Spike Lee's member bonus, another biopic. Malcolm X. Nice. We have covered a lot of great movies that started as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Awakenings, Wild at Heart, The Virgin Suicides. Queen of Katwe, or Clueless. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.